Hello, we're back, and again, I'm pretty sure I cut some of you off, but great to see you. My name's Pete, together my wife B. we lead the church here at KXC. So if I've not met you before, massive welcome to our church family. We are kicking off a new teaching series today, which is super exciting in the book of James. It's called Saving Faith. Um, it's going to be an incredible ride that we're about to embark upon, but we're going to start by going, I think, to the North London Zoom gathering, and Zulam is going to read from James chapter 1 verse 1 to 18. So if you're at home, why don't you grab your Bible? No excuse because you're at home now. So just grab it from the shelf or if you're on a smartphone or device, open up the scriptures. James chapter 1 and Zulam, are you with me? There we go. Hey, Zulam. Hey, Over I'm to good. you, buddy. Good morning. Excellent. All right. This is James chapter 1 verses 1 to 18. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, Greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. Do not be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us breath through the word of truth, that we might be kind, a kind of first fruits of all he created. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Zulam. Great to see you. You're looking great, by the way. Um, fantastic. So let's begin this teaching series. And, and by way of introduction, let me just say that this is perhaps the most controversial book in the entire New Testament. So Martin Luther, this was his take on James 1. Here's the best thing you can do with James, um, is you take the book of James, you rip it out of the New Testament and you throw it away. He, he was not a fan at all. He basically described it as the chaff of the New Testament. Paul's letters contain the wheat of the gospel. What do you do with chaff? You let it blow away, you get rid of it. It, pretty harsh words. But later, other scholars describe this as the junk mail of the New Testament. Not junk mail because it's harmless, junk mail because it might contain a virus that if you grab hold of this teaching, it might lead you towards heresy. It might undermine your faith. Why, why am I just sort of naming how controversial this letter is? Because I know what you're like and I know what my kids are like. If I say to my kids, hey guys, 
There's there's a program of film that's just come out on Netflix. It's incredible, and but you're not ready for it. In a few years' time, when you're older, you're going to love it. But you shouldn't watch it now because some of the scenes are a little bit too old for you. Do not watch it. If I were to leave the room, what would happen next? They're going to watch it. They're going to get on Netflix. They're going to watch it. If I say to the kids, "Hey, hey, kids, there's something in the cupboard," but I do not want you to see it. Please do not look in the cupboard. It's it's frightening what's in the cupboard. As I leave the room, at least two out of the three, but I'm pretty sure three out of the three are going to be like, open the cupboard. Let's see what is in the cupboard. If I tell you, just be really careful with the book of, of James because it's so controversial. What are you going to do? My hope is you're going to actually read it. You're going to actually read it. Um, because I don't, dis- I don't agree with Luther. I think this book is absolutely incredible. You might be thinking, what's the big deal? What's the controversy about? Well, The book of James is all about what faith looks like when it becomes action. It's about the works of Christianity, how we live as followers of Jesus. And James says some pretty punchy things. He says, look, faith that doesn't lead to action, it's worthless, it's dead. Faith without deeds is dead. He says at the end of chapter one, if your religion, in other words, your faith, doesn't manifest itself in caring for widows and orphans and serving the most vulnerable in society, it is worthless. If your religion, your faith, doesn't manifest itself in the taming of the tongue, in other words, hope speech it's worthless if it doesn't lead to you loving your neighbor as you love yourself it's a waste of time if it remains intellectual belief but doesn't transform your life your behavior how you operate in your family how you operate in your workplace then it is no use to anyone our faith leads to action right so so far we're, we're all in agreement like that sounds good that doesn't sound controversial But let's say you're working your way through the New Testament. We're doing that as a church, by the way. Um, You go through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. You then get to the story of the early church, Epic, the book of Acts. You then take on Paul and some of his teaching and Romans and 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians and Galatians and Ephesians. And what you're going to come up against in Paul again and again is this central doctrine called justification by faith. This is the good news of the gospel, that we are saved not because of what we've done, being very good boys and girls no but because of what he's done it's because of grace what did we bring to the equation when it comes to salvation we brought our sin while we were still sinners Christ died for the ungodly Romans 3 it says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God that's part one of that verse part two is beautiful we are justified freely by his grace now, this, this doctrine is everywhere in the writings of Paul. Let me just give you three examples just to really labour the point. Galatians, Paul says, a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. The answer is always going to be faith, by the way, if you want to get engaged um, from home, the answer is always going to be faith. Romans 3, for we maintain that a person is justified by Yeah, fantastic. Very good. Apart from the works of the law. Ephesians chapter 2, for it's by grace you have been saved through. Always going to be the same. Always going to be faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Justification by faith. Justification by faith. Constantly talking about justification by faith. There we go. Now, then you get to James chapter 2. And this is what James says. Are you ready for it? You see that a person is considered righteous. The same phrase in Greek is justified. You see a person is justified by what they do, not by faith alone. Oh 
my word. And you can see why Luther totally freaked out. Like there's a tension. Like which one is it? Justification by faith or justification by works? How do you resolve the tension? And here's the good news. We are going to resolve the tension. Just not now. We're going to do it in a few weeks' time. So hopefully that just draws you a little bit in to the series. We will do that when we tackle James chapter 2. But because of this controversy, because of this tension, a lot of people just want to get rid of tension, break tension, which is why Luther said, just just rip it out of your Bibles, get rid of it. Um, And because of that approach, in the last sort of few centuries, honestly, there's not been much scholarly attention given to the book of James. It's only in the last 50 or so years that scholars have picked it up and realized, oh my goodness, we need this book. It's part of our scriptures. It's full of wisdom that leads to life. This is what one recent scholar said, Peter Davids. He wrote this in the sort of 80s, 1980s. He said this, Protestants in general have struggled with the work. The result has been that the work has been pushed aside so that it's only in the last two decades, which is really like 40, 50 years because he wrote it a while ago, that a significant number of commentaries and studies on James have begun to appear. One now sees that the ugly duckling is indeed a swan, the neglected stepchild, the true heir, for nowhere does the voice of Jesus speak to the church more clearly than in James. Like this is Peter David's basic saying, no, 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 you, you need to grab hold of this book. It's a book that leads to life. And I would add that this is a book for such a time as this. Because the central theme of this letter is about what happens when your faith is tested by fire. When your faith is under pressure, how do we respond in moments like that? And that's why this letter is so key to this moment that we find ourselves in. Now, let me just tell you then about James, the author. There's a number of Jameses in the New Testament. So there's some debate about which James wrote this book. But the traditional view, and by the way, this is the most likely view, is that it's written by James, the brother of Jesus. In other words, this is someone that knows Jesus inside out. He wasn't just part of the crowd. He wasn't even one of the 12. He was one of the siblings. He wasn't just part of the three years of Jesus' ministry. He was probably around for the best part of the 30 years before Jesus' ministry. He knew Jesus inside out. So when it comes to passing on wisdom on how to follow the way of Jesus, James is a fantastic guide. Now, he's the one that, like, honestly, because he was so close to Jesus, he actually couldn't see beyond the humanity of Jesus to see the divinity of Jesus whilst Jesus was alive, right? That might be surprising, but it's only after the resurrection that James basically concludes, oh my goodness, my brother, my best mate is more than just my brother. He's, he's the Messiah of Israel. He's the savior of the world. He's God in human form. And that conclusion changed everything for James. He stayed in Jerusalem and he became the leader of the church there. So Paul went off preaching the gospel to the non-Jewish world. Peter went off and traveled preaching the gospel to the Jewish diaspora. But James put down roots in Jerusalem, the very epicenter of opposition to Christianity. 
This is the same city where the Romans had crucified Jesus, saying, we hate this message that Jesus is Lord. It undermines the central message of the empire that Caesar is Lord. So we're going to try and crush the message and we're going to try and crush the movement. That looked like persecution. But you had more than that. You had the Jewish authorities saying, look, this weird sect proclaiming that Israel's Messiah has come. He died. He rose again. No, no, that that doesn't fit. We don't want that. So we, we want to push that to one side. So we're talking in the first century being a follower of Jesus in Jerusalem was intense intense persecution but more than just suffering in terms of experiencing persecution the persecution led to scattering so listen to how James begins the letter he says to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations so you've got suffering as a result of persecution you've got scattering which leads to disconnection But if that wasn't bad enough, you then got the fact that there was a famine sweeping through the land from Egypt, which meant there was scarcity. There wasn't enough food to go round. Now, for Christians, it was brutally hard. Because of the persecution, it was hard to get a job. So unemployment levels were high. The main employer in the city was the temple. So really hard for the followers of Jesus to get a job. And there wasn't much food to go round. And, and, you know, to get food was really hard if you were a Christian. Now, does any of this sound familiar then. Oppression from above leading to people having to leave the city and poverty, particularly food poverty. James is writing from that context. In other words, he's well positioned to talk about how does your faith survive a crisis? Like a global pandemic, for example. Like how does faith operate when it's being tested by fire? James himself, by the way, He was martyred in AD 62, stoned to death by the Jewish authorities, and such was the persecution. So he writes this just before that, experiencing the heat of persecution. And he says, guys, this is how we live as followers of Jesus when you are being tested by fire. Now, I don't know about you, but I I hear that. I'm like, well, he's probably going to be a really good teacher for this moment that we find ourselves in. So what does he have to say? Let's, let's read the first bit. He says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Now, I don't know about you, but I read that and I'm like, does he actually mean that? Like, is that just like a preaching device, like exaggerating, embellishing the story for effect? I do that all the time, right? Um, is this just sort of like, you know, some, some you know, nice preaching device? Or does he actually mean you should be really joyful when you experience hardship? And the honest answer is he really means it. He's witnessed his brother, his best mate, Israel's Messiah, the saviour of the world, God in human form, brutally crucified and on the cross with his dying breath he declares it is finished in other words it's complete what I came for I have accomplished I've overcome death I've overcome darkness I've overcome all the schemes of the evil one so James knows that these trials they can lead to completeness the fulfillment of God's purposes. In fact, the early church, they believed that their suffering was a way of participating in the sufferings of Christ. 
Paul said, I want to know Christ. That's, that's my one goal. I want to know Christ. And yes, the power of his resurrection, like resurrection, power, bring it on. But he says, but I also want to participate in the sufferings because the two go together. Death leads to life. Trials lead to breakthrough. It brings about maturity of faith. It brings about completion. It brings breakthrough. Now, James is not a sole voice. All of the the writers in the New Testament echo this theme. So listen to the Apostle Paul, who says this, not only so, but we also glory or boast in our sufferings. Again, I read that like, Paul, like, do, do you actually mean that? Like, do you really mean that you're boasting in the hardships that you're experiencing? Like, oh, gosh, you know, I'm going through a really, really rough time. But, you know, it's so good. I'm so excited about this really challenging season that I'm in, you know, boasting about sufferings. Does Paul actually mean it? He goes on because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character and character, hope and hope does not disappoint us or put us to shame. In other words, Paul is saying Like the reason we glory in our sufferings is because we know the journey that goes from perseverance to character, from character to hope. And we know what hope is. What what is hope? It's joyful anticipation of what is to come. It's when you can see something on the horizon that's coming, you know nothing can stop it and it stirs up joy. Like Paul basically says, I know these sufferings are hard. It is rough, but can you see what's on the horizon? The the trials are going to lead to the strengthening of your faith, to the birthing of hope. It will bring about breakthrough. So we've looked at James. We've looked at Paul. Now, Peter, these are the three key leaders of the early church. Listen to how Peter puts it. In all this, you greatly rejoice. Like, Do you actually mean that? He does. Though now for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Here's what is happening, uh, Peter says, when we experience trials and, and testing season. It's like our faith is put in a furnace and it's refined. Now, what's the first part of the refining process? Our faith is broken down. When you put gold into a furnace, it changes shape. It even changes substance. In other words, the solid gold becomes molten gold. It becomes liquid. It changes substance because the impurities are siphoned off. And when it comes out of the furnace and it's reset, it's strong, it's pure, it's of infinite value, right? The end goal is the strengthening of our faith, the purification of our faith. But the first stop on the journey to strengthening is weakening, our faith being pulled apart. Now, I say that because if you're in this moment thinking this is a crisis of faith, there are certain days I'm not even sure what I believe, if I believe, then I want you to know, do not freak out. The first step on the journey to the strengthening of your faith is the weakening of your faith, the testing of your faith. God is purifying your faith. And that's why James, Peter and Paul can say, this is exciting. We should celebrate because if our faith is strengthened, think of what might happen. If you've got a tiny amount of faith, faith the size of a mustard seed, you can tell that mountain, that obstacle in your way, get out of the way, move into the sea. If you've got tiny faith that can do that, imagine purified faith and what that could do. Unbelievable, right? 
So what actually happens when your faith is tested by fire? The answer is waves of doubt. James talks about doubt. Waves of doubt come crashing in against you. And you begin to experience temptation um, or doubts in this form. Number one, then, this is around the question of the existence of God. You doubt the existence of God or you might discount the existence of God in seasons of struggle. You basically think, wow, this suffering must be a sign that God does not exist. Exist Because if he existed, we wouldn't be experiencing life like this. This happened, by the way, after the two great wars in the first half of the 20th century, a wave of atheism swept through the continent of Europe. People concluded like, if God did exist, how could this atrocity happen? And it led to people doubting the existence of God. So that's wave number one. You may have experienced like, does God exist? Like, really? Like, what am I to think about that? Wave number two then comes crashing in, which is really about God being present. But if he is present, maybe he's impotent. In other words, he doesn't have power to save. Or if he is present, maybe he's indifferent, like he doesn't really care. Or if he is present, maybe he's punishing me. Maybe he's bringing judgment on me. These are dark thoughts. But let's be really honest. Many of us have had them in the last days, weeks, months. Where is God? The first question is around the existence of God. The second question or the second wave is around the character of God. Like who is God and what is he like? Now I know you've been there for many of you and I've been there. Like in my ranting this week, I've been a broken man at points in this week. And in my mumblings to God, I've basically said, God, do you even know what this is like? Like to try and lead a church and homeschool three children on three different curriculum. Do, do you actually even know what that is like for B and I, you know, trying to juggle all of this? Do you know what it's like to teach a nine-year-old fronted adverbials? No, nor me, because I didn't know what a fronted adverbial was until the beginning of this week. I Googled it so that I could teach it to my son and my son didn't care. And honestly, nor do I. But do you know what it feels like to try and be father to your kids, head teacher to your kids, maths teacher, English teacher, and then to be their, you know, friend in the playground during break and then go back to father mode. And do you know what that's even like? And do you know how much I'm missing my family and my friends? And do you know the pressure I'm under? It actually feels really good just to get some of that out. That's my version of, of, of the rant. I'm pretty sure you've got your version, which is, God, I'm not actually coping. Like, where are you? And I'm beginning to question and doubt your goodness in all of this. That's actually an act of worship, you know. It's called lament. But listen to James's response, verse 17. He says, I I want you to know this. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. Here's what you need to know about God. This is James saying, what you need to know is that everything good comes from him. Two, that he's the father of the heavenly lights. He's the creator and the sustainer of all things that took on flesh to be amongst us. And he's given us his spirit. So he's here right now. He's all powerful. Thirdly, you need to know he doesn't have mood swings. He doesn't have good and bad days. He does not change like shifting shadows. He's the same yesterday, today and forevermore. He's everlasting and he is always good. 
Like, where does suffering come from? It's a big question. Paul says, uh, not Paul, James says, Paul would agree, um, that suffering exists because evil exists. And evil exists because there's an evil one. And suffering sometimes exists because our desires are pointed in the direction of evil. And they give birth to sin, and that sin creates suffering. What James is trying to emphasize is that God isn't the author of suffering. And God is never the author of sickness. And he's not the author of a global pandemic. No, God is always good. So you come to this conclusion that God is present, but he's present with power and he's present and he cares. And he's not present to punish because mercy triumphs over judgment. That's a quote from the letter of James. But this is a wrestle, right? A third wave then crashes in, which is the wave or the question of the purposes of suffering. Like, God, if you are present and you are all powerful and you do actually care and mercy trumps over judgment, like, what are you doing in the midst of COVID-19, right? And often we struggle to answer that question and maybe in years to come we will look back and our conclusion will be the same as James. He was present to purify. He was present to strengthen our faith. In other words, to redeem all things, to borrow the language from Paul, to work all things for good, to borrow the language from Genesis 50, what the enemy meant for harm, God worked for good. Jesus is on a mission to redeem and renew all things. And because he wants to use us in that purpose, he uses these moments of suffering to strengthen, to fortify, to purify our faith. Like that's what God is doing right now. He's strengthening our faith. But in the middle of the crisis, what it actually feels like on the receiving end is that our faith is being weakened, pulled apart, like solid gold being melted down. Here's a proverb well worth remembering. Weak faith in a strong branch is more than enough to save. Let me say it again. Weak faith in a strong branch is more than enough to save. I want you to imagine this then. You're on a cliff walk and you're walking by the edge of the cliff and the ground beneath you gives way and you begin to slip down the rocky slope, you know, towards a massive ravine and you're freaking out and then you see out of the rock face like a branch. And as you look at the branch and as you slip towards it, you're thinking, I'm just not sure that branch is going to hold my weight, particularly after a few months of lockdown and, and comfort eating. I'm just not sure that branch has what it takes to rescue me in a moment what are you going to do what are you going to do in a moment like that how much faith do you need in a moment like that and the answer is you need this amount of faith enough faith amidst all the doubts to reach out your hand and to test the branch to grab hold of it how much doubt is destructive the answer is enough doubt to force you to not even bother reaching out to grab the branch. This is what Tim Keller says in his book, The Reason for God. It's not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith actually saves. Strong faith in a weak branch is fatally inferior to weak faith in a strong branch. Weak faith in a strong branch is more than enough to save you. So right now, if you feel like you're under pressure, you're experiencing these waves of doubts, and you feel like your your faith is being stripped down and weakened, you need to know that Weak faith in a strong branch is more than enough 
to save you. So what does this saving faith actually look like? Let me close with this. We'll be brief here. What does it actually look like? Here's some sort of things that you can apply now to this day and this week. Number one, stand firm and persevere. Stand your ground. This is one of the beautiful truths of the Christian faith that when we stand our ground, we take ground in the kingdom of God. When we stand our ground, we take ground in the kingdom of God. How many times does God say to the Israelites, you stand firm and watch the deliverance I'm going to bring you. Your job, stand your ground. I'll be the one that takes ground. He says it on numerous occasions, right? So stand your ground and persevere. I love this story. Tennis player called Vitas Gerolitis, who was a, you know, a huge star in the sort of 70s and 80s, around the era of um, John McEnroe. You cannot be serious, the same era as, as Jimmy Connors. In fact, Jimmy Connors was the arch rival of Vitas Gerolitis. Um, now these two, Jimmy Connors, Vita Scalitis, in the build up to 1980, they'd met each other on 16 occasions. And in the past 16 matches, head to head, Jimmy Connors had won all of them. That's brutal for Vita Scalitis, right? And then the 12th of January, 1980, they come head to head in the Masters semi-final. Now all the press are saying, like Vita Scalitis, he's got no chance, absolutely no chance. But on that day, he has an absolute blinder. He beats Jimmy Connors, the crowd go nuts in the press conference afterwards. The journalists are saying like, how did you do it? We'd ridden you off, we thought there was no hope. And he stared at the camera and he said this, let this be a lesson to you. Nobody beats Vetus Garolitis 17 times in a row, which is absolutely epic, right? What an iconic statement. In other words, I refused to quit. Like there's a moment when your faith is being tested. Dig your heels in, stand your ground and persevere. Two then, fix your gaze heavenwards and nurture hope. Fix your gaze on the horizon. Paul says, suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, character, hope. Remember we said hope is, is joyful anticipation. It's when you see the kingdom of God on the horizon. Um, faith and hope, they are like siblings. Hope is when you can see on the horizon. Faith is when you believe it to be true and the promise of God and you act as a result of what you see. That's what the writer of Hebrews says. Faith is being sure of what we hope for, certain of what we can't always see, right? So in this moment, fix your gaze on what's to come. And what are we fixing our gaze on? Not a vaccine, right? Not a vaccine. I know some of us are excited about the vaccine. Cass had the vaccine. Good on you. Um, but we're not just fixing our eyes on a vaccine and we're not just fixing our eyes on some level of return to normality. We are fixing our eyes on the return of Christ when heaven and earth will be reconciled and there'll be no death, no grief, no crying, no pain, no anxiety and no poverty and no unemployment and no racism. Like all of that will be flushed away and we'll experience healing and restoration. Fix your gaze on what's to come, right? That's the wave that's coming, the return of Christ. But in anticipation of that wave, sometimes we, we get little waves that alert us to what's to come. They're called revivals. When God pours out his power on the church and the church comes alive, uh, comes alive and rediscovers the power of the gospel through signs and wonders and the power to bring salvation to many who come to faith. I'm praying for that, right? I'm fixing my eyes on the big way of Christ's return, but I'm also believing for little ripples as the spirit is poured out. Yeah. Fix your eyes on the horizon. So stand your ground, fix your gaze on the horizon. And here's the final thing you do. 
Hold out your hands in a posture of receiving and get ready to receive a gift. Just hold your hands out, get ready to receive a gift. This is what James says, verse 12. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Three crowns potentially in mind here. The crown of intimacy. Like when you got married in the first century, you were given a crown. Spoke of this covenant, this intimacy. Like this is James saying, like, remind yourself, like you are in covenant with the maker of the universe. When he returns, you're going to experience a wedding banquet. In the meantime, just remember that you can experience that intimacy by the spirit here and now. Get ready to receive. Secondly, a crown of royalty, a reminder that you are sons and daughters of the king. You have a royal vocation to share in the rule and reign of God. Remember who you are. James is basically saying when that final wave comes, you'll experience your true identity and your true vocation, but you can taste it by the spirit right now. The spirit is a down payment of what's to come. Thirdly, a crown of victory. James probably has in his mind like the Olympic Games when a, a winner receives the crown if they're victorious. And James is basically saying Christ is victorious and therefore in Christ you are victorious. We are more than conquerors if we are in Christ Jesus. Can you not see what James is doing? He's trying to shift perspective. He's trying to say, look, stand your ground, fix your gaze on the horizon, hold out your hands and receive life. Receive like intimacy that's available in the struggle. Receive this understanding of your sonship and daughtership and, and your true calling and receive that you are victorious even in the midst of the struggle. Amen. So let me land with this. The question isn't really how much faith do you have right now? But honestly, that's a secondary question. It's not the question I'm most concerned about. So it's, it's not about the quantity of your faith. You know, it's not even about the quality of your faith. Like, is your faith weak or strong right now? Honestly, not massively interested in that question because it's a secondary question. Here's the primary question. Where are you placing your faith right now? In this moment where your faith is being strengthened, it feels like it's being weakened, but that's part of the process. So at, the, at this moment of weakness, where are you placing your faith and here's the truth to grab hold of. Weak faith in a strong branch is more than enough to save.